Koto Kato, everyone, and welcome to the weekly hoon from the Kaka. I am Bernard Hickey, and uh, we've got Peter Bale, our esteemed co-host in Hoon Bay, um, oh, dialing that's in. That's very kind of you, Bernard. I'm here from Hoon Bay, and uh, it's very nice to see you, Bernard. I, I mean, I have actually made myself a gin today. I don't know whether did you make yourself a gin? I did. It's very nice. I've got the Excellent. Yuzu gin and tonic today. And uh, with lots of ice, so by the time we finish it at the end of the hour, it'll be just mostly water. But that's 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 probably good. Excellent. Well, I've, I, as 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 the usual precaution, I made two of them, and I've used my uh, zester for the lemon. Got a little bit of um, sage in there, and a little bit of thyme, and in fact, a little bit of mint as well. Oh. So, so it's a sort of gardener's gin, really. That's just. Too good, and frankly, I wish that I had some of that in my, my class. And it's the Great Barrier Gin. I should get that bottle, actually. I mean, I don't know why the hell we're promoting gin when neither of us really drink it, and also neither of us really um, – we're not getting sponsored because no. who was going to give us some gin it hasn't come back, but I'd better chase it, actually. Yeah, we're not being very ruthless about our gin. Uh, no, gin. We're not, we're not, our monetization. I mean, basically, we consider this a public service podcast, really, don't we? Yeah, Luckily, we haven't asked well, for any money consider yet. consider it marketing for the kaka. <laughs> it is marketing for the kaka, um, but it's also hopefully a lot of fun. And it's certainly um, – I always come away at the end of the hour informed about something I hadn't thought about or heard about. And we've got a big one this week because we're going to talk firstly about what's happened in our politics and our economy this week in Aotearoa mm-hmm. and then uh, jump off just after 10 past five with Robert Patman. And then at 5.30, we have Helen O'Sullivan, the Crocker's CEO, who is an expert on build-to-rent. I could get her to fix the holes in my driveway? She, you know, she, her company runs the building. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, Crocker's has done, does a lot of work around managing various properties, and uh, she's a very thoughtful person on uh, how to get more housing, particularly medium-density housing in the big cities. So that'll be fun. Mm, good. Uh, because this Excellent. week, National announced that they would remove one of the tax blockages for build to rent of course build to rent is all about the pension fund money coming in and building lots and lots of apartments that people can rent for long periods of time apartments that are properly built as apartments that are last designed to last 100 years and which are managed hopefully professionally and certainly designed to be places to live let's leave the detail of that before Always. you piss it all away to when she comes home, shall we? <laughs> Absolutely. And so, um, Bernard, I noticed that, shall we start with the polls then? Because yeah. it is kind of interesting to see that even the Curia poll, which is the the Taxpayers mm-hmm. Association one, I believe, um, Chris Hipkins has, has definitely grabbed that little that little initiative and done pretty well, it would seem. I mean, I, I think we want to avoid the kind of horse race bullshit that I heard being talked on the wireless this morning from various political journalists about this, but... Because it isn't just about tactics and political tactics. It's about what they're really doing. But he does seem to have used that attention to detail and his political nous to do quite a good job in the first, you know, politically in the first couple of months. There's certainly a honeymoon effect and a clearing of the decks effect as um, the grumpiness, the frustration and the... Uh, tiredness about um, mm. just Cinder Ardern as the Prime Minister has gone. So we've got a fresh face, and he's a reasonably sensible, uh, accessible, authentic face. And there hasn't been too many sort of obvious big disasters outside of the Beltway. There's the usual Beltway noise and, you know, dramas in Parliament and things, but nothing that would really, you know, destroy the government. Although I think Mm -hmm. the noise that we're hearing from the health sector and the A&E departments is a bad sign for the government because obviously the um, removal of the chair of Te Ura is not an appealing thing from a distance, but it doesn't have real-world impacts. But now we're seeing massive overcrowding already in some of our busiest A&E departments. Dunedin, earlier in the week, shut down yeah. all its surgeries. On Monday night, the Auckland Hospital had 150 people crammed into its A&E that only has room for 35. Mm. Uh, and it's only March, and we haven't got the winter. And we, need to, we need to take some care with this. And it was very interesting hearing our old mate Michael Baker on this morning. To, you know, we, We've got to keep... COVID in the back of our minds and the masks in our back pockets, I think, and so on. And the, you know, it's very easy to be lulled into a false sense of security. I, I was really struck this week. It's sort of really a more of a media question for me. National did a very, uh, you know, targeted hit on consultants and so on. And this 
completely ludicrous idea that they would rob Peter literally because I, I actually <laughs> know I was a highly paid consultant for for uh, for New Zealand on air at one point and not not now but unfortunately but um, I definitely had my my snout you know as far into that trough as I could possibly get it but it is it is a very kind of I was really struck at the way the media just jumped onto that, you know, clamped on like a set of vice grips and wouldn't let go, but was essentially doing National's job for it and not really talking about it in a very intelligent way. Yeah, because on our leading national national radio program, I thought where some you know the fake giggles. I mean, at least when you and I giggle, we mean it. But <laughs> I just I don't know. I felt we were, felt some of the work was being done for national a bit too easily on that one, with the classic sort of oh Jesus Christ, you can't pay a bloody consultant that much. I'm a I'm a farmer. And I get my red bands. You know, it's just it was all bollocks. I thought. Yeah, I think it, it's no. worth digging a bit deeper on this, and also being perhaps a bit uh, sceptical about National's claims on consultants because Mm. I've been around for a couple of decades and I've seen the ups and downs of governments and changes. And from 2011-12 onwards, the National government, in an attempt to constrain spending and also, you know, in a way an ideological attempt to starve the beast – made a point of employing consultants rather than full-time public servants to do these sorts of um, bits and pieces of policy work and various mm. bits and pieces of work that needed to be done. Uh, and uh, the concern was uh, around 2017 when the new government came in that the the government was in a way hiding a lot of cost and work and spending too mm. much money on consultants. And therefore there Absolutely. was this, there was this ban on employing consultants. And if we were going to have people working full time for the government and charging $200 an hour, they might as well come and work for us full time at a hundred dollars an hour and yeah. um, we'll be yeah, fine. I mean, people forget. I mean, I, I don't, I don't actually consider that Deloitte did a terribly good job of the RNZ, TVNZ merger policy work. Um, I think it would have been much more cost effective had they hired me to do much more of it than I got involved in. Uh, and we might have actually done it in a way that actually delivered benefits. But anyway, what do I know? Actually, quite a bit on that one. But, um, you know, Craig points out that we haven't got the Ministry of Works anymore. I mean, you can't do the kind of reform that Labour is talking about or pushes, whether it's the health reforms or the RNZ reforms, without talking to these, I mean, hopefully talking to some consultants who've actually had some experience overseas where these things have been tried because New Zealand has a pretty good history of you know making cock-ups that have already been made overseas you know and make, making them again without consulting with anybody who might have worked overseas not that we know anybody who's worked overseas in this area I think you're right about the undermining over 20 30 years of the capacity of the public service to respond to requests for new policy ideas and hmm. to implement policy and the government in this term has brought it all together. You've got RMA reform, Three Waters reform, the attempt to do TVNZ, RNZ, the health reform. These are yeah. massive restructuring projects, which if you were a company, you would bring in the consultants. In previous years, in the, you know, the 60s, 70s and 80s, there was a Ministry of Works. There was a much more – there was more capacity to do that sort of stuff and also, frankly, a lot less um, complication. You know, um, these days when you want to restructure, you can't get away with just having no HR. You can't Mm, uh, mm. get away with just not announcing it or hoping that the three people who will tell the public uh, hear about it. You know, there was a day when a minister could call in the press gallery into their office and there'd be five or six men sitting there in front of the minister. Mm. The minister would say, here's what we're going to do. Can you tell everyone? The reporters would walk out and file their copy to the various newspapers. Remember, not much radio, no TV. And everyone got it the next morning and everyone read it and saw it. Now, Mm -hmm. try talking to five million people. You basically have to address five million different social media profiles. And you also also have to get through this kind of weird horse race sceptical media thing, which is just – this is where I came for the little giggle, giggle things, which is just like have a go and have another pull and pull the next one, Christopher. I don't know. Is this is this what it's going to be like for the next six months that we're all just playing ping pong? I think the government or is going to try and clear the, clear the decks of anything that feels remotely controversial or distracting from their main task, and the government's main task is going to be to try and focus everyone's attention on the opposition's policies. And I think the, actually the opposition did a good job this week of trying to regain 
the momentum and the initiative by calling for a short, sharp uh, select committee inquiry into bank profits, which effectively forced mm-hmm. the government to do something they should have done a long time ago, which is to say they were seriously considering a market study of banking profits. They haven't really used the Competition Commission terribly effective, it seems to me, whether it's on banking or on supermarkets. There's, there's been a slight – I mean, it is – it is difficult because it's only a country of five million people. So, but you know the lack of open banking, the lack of real, real sort of banking initiative, the paucity. I, I actually had to spend a considerable of t- amount of time today on a on a helpline to one of the banks, and I just thought, Jesus Christ, this is you know this is a poor. You know, it was was a truly hideous experience. Yeah, um, and that's something we're we're not quite used I'd to. Like some innovation. Yeah, because yeah. we're not quite used to because. Overseas, the banks, you know, you try and use a bank in the United States or the UK or even Australia, a really painful exercise. It used to be much easier in New Zealand, but, of course, they've moved uh, from having um, Mm -hmm. bank branches Mm -hmm. and lots of people sitting there at desks to everyone has to do their own bureaucracy when they fill in the forms online. And I think there's also a lot of frustration that a lot of the banks have pulled out of some of the regional areas and suburban areas. And also have done fantastically well out of rising interest rates because they haven't passed them Absolutely. on to term depositors. No, there's always there's always a lag, and it's always going. You know, it's, there, there are rotters. Now we've got Robert there. Great to see you, Prof. Robert. Hi, hi, Peter. Hi, cheers hi to there. see you. Sorry, I've just dashed in through the door, Bernard. No worries, no worries. We're lovely <laughs> to see you. Right. We really Great. enjoy in having you having you on. Breath and breath and so um, we, we're going to do international affairs with you if you don't mind. We'd like to talk about about Bakhmut and the importance of Bakhmut, or otherwise. The uh, I don't know whether you've seen the the excellent economist uh, analysis of how many Russians have been killed. Not just because you often in that military parlance you get casualties, which is de- dead and injured. And mm. the economist is talking about two hundred thousand Russians having been killed, which was really striking, given that they only lost fifteen thousand in Afghanistan yeah. and yet couldn't sustain the complaints from the mothers. We'd like to talk a little bit about the bellicosity that we saw this week from the uh, Chinese uh, foreign minister. Of course, bellicosity is a word that bellicose is a word that only journalists and professors of international affairs use. Oh, that's, listening to no, a very, we, we should what? claim that for ourselves, Peter. That's us. Oh. <laughs> no, um, I'm bloody sure we can we can get Robert to use the word bellicose <laughs> in there. But um, uh, and then well, there's some new developments on Nord Stream. So, so Robert, mm. t- tell us what you're thinking about. The um, the Bakhmut situation. Not again to turn you too much into a into a uh, armchair soldier. Well, the Bakhmut situation has been on the verge of falling into Russian hands for about mm. six months. And what we do know is that the Ukrainians have stubbornly resisted. But there was speculation about a week or so ago, Peter, that the Ukrainians were on the verge of a deliberate tactical withdrawal. Mm. But then, but then uh, Zelensky President Zelensky conferred with some of his top generals, and they urged him to stay put, I think. Mm. Well, that's the way it's being presented. And um, there is a sense that the Ukrainians have gradually conceded bits and pieces or yards of territory, so to speak, but at great cost to the Russians. And many analysts are puzzled why the Russians have put so much emphasis yeah. on Blackfoot. I suppose they may see it as a sort of gateway to further progress, but it is costing them a lot. And the Wagner Group in particular have paid a terrible price mm. for the inch by inch progress they've made. So, it, yeah, I, I mean, it could fall. Uh, I was listening to several journalists overnight, and it's realistic the Russians will seize it. But the next question seems to be, so what? <laughs> yeah, there's so many things at play here at the moment. I mean, particularly if you see these attacks overnight, which the, the Russians said were uh, a, a response to that supposed attack deep into Russia by the um, actually Russian-born um, right-wing right wing yep. that we talked about, I think, last week. It seems as though they expended a tremendous amount of their missiles in that attack, including, I think, six of these hypersonic dagger missiles. Many of, And I think the ratio of missiles that got through and were shot down by the Ukrainians was with the number of got through was the highest it's been for one of these yeah. uh, Russian attacks for a while. What, again, what do you think's going on there? I mean, that you've got, that they're pulling out all the stops. Well, I think, I think um, they are disturbed by the increasing uh, domestic resistance to the Russian war effort. There's been a whole series of fires, mysterious fires mm. in strategic locations. One was 15 miles from the Kremlin. And 
I suppose that's lent fresh urgency. Maybe Mr. Putin feels he's in a race against time. He's got to make some significant military progress mm. in the first half of this year. The Russians haven't hidden their anxiety about the massive infusion of Ukraine, the assistance the Ukrainians are now getting and what that may do. And um, I think the Kremlin calculates this is a wind of opportunity for their point of view before the Ukrainians have got all that new military capabilities on board and mm. fully utilised. Which is starting to, I mean, we've got, a, you've got a, what a, I mean, a, the, the challenges, there's only 12, 12 challenges, I think, but there are quite a significant number of leopards going in. The challenges, I yep. think, are on their way. That would set them up for something in two or three weeks, wouldn't it, beginning of April? Yeah, and also there are indications they're getting a, a lot more sophisticated. Uh, mm. They're getting a greater missile range. They're mm. getting a capability to hit, hit Russia from a distance of about 150 kilometers which is about double the himars capability yeah. of 80 kilometers and we know what damage the himars have done mm. so i think that's pretty ominous um the the other thing that really strikes one is that the russian military doesn't seem to be learning and that is to say that they are taking huge casualties huge costs for relatively little progress it's these offensives have been military on the ground have been infantry led mm. and yes they are using distant punishment but again that may be a window of opportunity that's closing because ukraine i, I think the ukrainian ability to deal with a recent onslaught in the last 24 hours was slightly reduced because the russians use hypersonics mm. uh, capability and i think they basically are very difficult to shoot out of the sky. Yeah, including attacking going, going as far as Lviv. In the, yeah. In a quite, quite well, a long I, way I think, I think Mr. Putin's in a desperate situation. Mm. Uh, he knows that anything that smacks of a defeat in Ukraine is, is, is political curtains for mm. him. So just because an authoritarian regime is not sort of displayed as being in trouble in the way that a Western one is, it doesn't mean they're not feeling the heat. I think yeah. Mr. Putin's very frightened. A lot of the people you appear at, you watch on Russian uh, state TV, who are supporters of Putin, are clearly rattled. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, the whole thing has been a catastrophic disaster. You know, it's, it just has not worked out according to plan. No, no. Yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit last week about Nord Stream, and again, I feel as though I'm mm. forcing you to become a kind of media commentator, you know, with, with the pipe and the and the cravat. But this interesting <laughs> development, but you have got a wine cooler behind you, as somebody noticed as well, which and I, I've got one of yeah, those. Yeah, so you know how I got that? I just gave a, a talk to the Law Society. They had me on there as a, a speaker, and um, they said, "You know, here, here have this." So I they are fantastic. They are totally fantastic. Those huskies. We, yeah, huskies as recommended on the Hoon. But um, <laughs> so last week we were talking about the idea that um, that the the Americans had said it was possibly some Russian some Ukrainian sympathisers who had. Uh, done a freelance operation and, and blown up mm. the Nord Stream, and now we learn that the Germans actually would appear to have inspected the yacht that was involved in this, supposedly, and um, found explosive residue. And also today I see from one of the OSINT uh, open source intelligence journalists that he's discovered it's a 50-foot Bavaria yacht, uh, which is for charter out of Rostock in Germany. Um, But what he's also pointed out, which none of the work, neither Seymour, it's basically blown apart the Seymour Hirsch idea so far, uh, which is that a number of um, rather suspect Russian-connected ships that were in the area at the same time, the yacht's passage appears to be remarkably close to some of those. So, uh, well, I, I just well, I didn't I didn't use the word plot, the phrase plot thickens, but but spinoff did. Well, what, what I think we do know for certain is that we're dealing in the fog of war, and secondly, all actors are less than candid about mm-hmm. their actions. But Mr. Putin probably takes the prize for the greatest gap between his declaratory policy and his substantive policy. Here was a man who said two days before the invasion, I will never invade Ukraine. Russia will never invade Ukraine. And they just went ahead and did it. So the Russians have also been very active in pointing the finger, uh, which always makes one wonder if this is just a little bit too feverish and that they may be involved. But look, who knows? I, I can't shed any light on this. I'm as mystified as anyone. I think if it was a pro-Ukrainian group, we don't know it is, but if it was, I think Western governments will be more relaxed about it than they would have been, say, six months ago. Yeah. Simply yeah. because yeah. of the suffering that the Ukrainians have undergone. I'm not I'm not in any way condoning or justifying it. I'm just saying I think that many Western governments would be more relaxed about it than even, they would. Even the Germans? 
Although had it been known immediately, it might have been a bit tricky for yeah, the Germans. I, yeah. yeah, I mean, we just have to wait and see. None of us know who did it. It was um, you know, scuba diver Peacock in the, in the wardrobe with a, with a lead pipe. <laughs> I was wondering, Robert, if we could cross back across the world to the National People's Congress this week. We had yeah. some big speeches from President Xi and also from his new foreign minister who t- who went all wolf warrior on us <laughs> and came out with some very strong comments about the United States, talked about neo-McCarthyist campaigns. Xi talked about um, the need to spend more on military and even use the, the warning about conflict and essentially portrayed America and the West as trying to contain and limit China's ambitions. What did you think of the rhetoric, at least, uh, which is the grumpiest I've heard in quite some time between these two powers, which we need to keep an eye on? Yeah, I think China is under pressure. And I think the rhetoric is reflecting some conversations behind heated conversations behind closed doors. I don't think all the Chinese uh, political actors in the Central Committee are entirely pleased with the situation at the moment. After all, uh, they adopted a permissive brand of neutrality, which was effectively supporting Putin without actually helping too much. And that seems to have backfired on the Chinese. There's been lots of speculation about, you know, this wolf warrior diplomacy. Actually, that term, I think, captures Xi's diplomacy since about 2012, maybe Mm. even before. Well, he came to power in 2012. There was a hardening of China's stance, I think, since about 2010 after the global financial crisis. Um, Is it significant? I think there's a domestic dimension to it. Um, I think there's also a frustration. I think sometimes when authoritarian leaders engage in such tough rhetoric, it reflects the fact that China is conflicted. China's got no good options in, with respect to the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, they could um, you know, beef up their military and give Putin arms, but they know that it would be a disaster because China's rise to superpower status is based on enthusiastic and effective participation in the world capitalist economy. Mm. Three markets loom large, the US, EU, Japan. Two of those markets have warned China in the last uh, 10 days that should they arm Russia, they will constrain Chinese exports. And we're talking about literally hundreds of thousands of billions of dollars. I mean, Chinese exports to US markets, more than uh, $760 last year, Uh, 740 billion to the EU. In a sense, this rhetoric may reflect the fact that China has no easy options. It has to make up its mind whether trying to prevent a Putin collapse in Moscow is sufficient reason to compromise the Chinese economy and perhaps Xi's leadership. So this is some tough choices here. And Robert, from a sort of academic, almost academic point of view or diplomatic point of view, I found that use of the word containment, the idea that the United States was trying to contain um, but expressed from the Chinese, because, of course, you're a great student, I think, of George F. Kennan, uh, the great uh, American diplomat who came up with the the concept of containing the Soviet Union, which was, um, it was selective know. containment or asymmetrical yeah. containment, is exactly. what Cannon backed. He yeah. was he was devastated when American successive administrations in in the late fifties and sixties began to move to sort of comprehensive containment. He thought that was completely mm. counterproductive. Um, yeah, I think you're right to raise that, Peter. The United States can't contain China; it's too yeah. big. China's economy and political welfare depends on participation in the world capitalist economy. That's a reality. And there is no comparable economic situation now as there was in the Cold War when you had rival economic systems, rival military alliances. We don't have that sort of bipolar structure. In which case, then, don't we have to be careful, including even the three of us and this lovely audience, but certainly the media. I noticed Paul Keating really had a go at the Australian media for hyping up the conflict with China and just saying how dangerous it was, the language that we're using. And you do, you know, you've, you, I, I was reading this week about the specific dates that the Chinese military have been given to um, get to the state where they could 
um, launched an invasion of Taiwan. We've got the the Australians this week buying, you know, confirming they're buying U.S. and then British nuclear submarines. There's a risk of us all talking us talking ourselves into this, isn't there? There is, but the Chinese have been their own worst enemy. They describe Putin's invasion as a legitimate security initiative. Mm. You know, considering that breaks key principles of Chinese foreign policy, that's puzzling. And I'm, I'm sure it's led to a toughening of the Western position. Um, we shouldn't exaggerate the significance of US-China rivalry. There are people in the United States who believe the US can contain China. Mm. I, I think their grasp on reality is precarious. We're not in a Cold War situation. The reality is that we're in a situation in the 21st century where two great powers are in, engaged in intense competition but neither of them can run the world. What do you, what do you, when, when you're teaching your students at the moment, what, what, do you talk about a unipolar world or a multipolar world or, in this case, a bipolar world or possibly a psychotic world? I would talk world? in terms of a unipolar hyphen multipolar world. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because uh, it is unipolar in the sense that America has overwhelming military capability, mm-hmm. but it's multipolar in the sense that Many of the problems that face the world can't be solved by any country acting unilaterally. And um, whether they be economic problems, whether they be environmental problems, whether they be problems of pandemics, we know those problems can't be solved by any one power. So the best thing that could happen then, presumably, quickly, and I I want to ask you one other foreign affairs question before we go to a a much more New Zealand question, but the the best thing that could happen would be Anthony Blinken re-establishing his um, trip to Beijing, surely. I think that could happen. I think there's a a battle going on behind closed doors in Beijing at the moment, which will, you know, they're very conflicted over the Ukraine situation. I think there are people in China who realise that that some of the rhetoric articulated by Xi and his close aides is actually counterproductive to Chinese interests. So, yeah, I mean, they, they are in a very difficult spot. The other thing is the personal relationship between Biden and Xi Jinping seems to be quite good. Yeah. And uh, so not best friends the way he's supposed they're to be. They're not best friends, but they have been exchanging mm. views during mm. the Ukraine crisis. As we spoke about before, Owen Matthews, the journalist, I think did quite a good expose on how China was actually in quietly behind the scenes through back channels talking to the Americans in the first month of the Ukrainian war, yeah. which actually contradicted their public stance. Absolutely. Interesting. Robert, now, I understand you have a 5.30 commitment, so I can't ask you about Georgia. But let's talk about Georgia maybe next week, because I think that is the next place we have to watch. It's unbelievably yeah. dangerous. And, of course, it's where yeah. we probably should have drawn the line for Putin in the first place. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, guys. Making an assertion. See you later. Thank you, Robert. Thank you very much. I'd like to welcome into the Hoon now for for the first time, Helen O'Sullivan, who is the CEO of Crockers. Helen, it's lovely to see you. Thank you very much for joining us here. Bernard, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Hi, Helen. Nice to meet you too. I'm I'm sitting in one of your your places and was just speculating before you came in whether you could... um, Know, do some work on the driveway or get a, you know, put the windows <laughs> down or something like that. But I, I, I do have a very nice person from Crocker's who helps us with that. Thank you. I'm delighted to hear it. <laughs> and and I'm also in a in a property that is being looked after very well. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. No, but um, uh, Helen is also you know very experienced in the worlds of medium density developments in Auckland as a former CEO of Ockham and mm-hmm. of course now managing so many properties like that in uh, in Auckland um Helen uh, I wondered if we could talk a bit about build to rent introduce it to an audience that maybe hasn't really thought about this sort of institutional investment in uh, rental properties because we've got this idea in our heads that the only people who own rental properties in New Zealand are mum and dad investors, and the only way that they can do it is to rent out an existing standalone home. And uh, tell us a bit more about Build to Rent and the opportunity for us here. So I suppose the easiest way of explaining it is that Build to Rent is when you have effectively an institutional level of of investment in residential property. So you're providing residential property as a full-scale business exercise akin to 
retirement homes, probably the you know retirement villages um, and student accommodation. But that bit in the middle for people who aren't at that kind of over sixty five level and aren't at the entry level of student halls, etc. Um, and I think the thing that probably differentiates it is that. In that context, the person who's occupying the home, the resident, is very much at the heart of the experience. So you are running a business like a hotel, essentially, except the key difference is you want your occupants to stay for as long as mm-hmm. possible. Your, your best value is keeping the property occupied 100% of the time. Uh, you do that by keeping the people who occupy your homes happy. You do that by getting things fixed when they're broken, you get it by having a high quality of service, and you do that by ensuring that people speak well of your properties and they invite their friends to come and live in them. What's the difference with Kaingora, for example? And I know Kaingora is the former state housing operation. It's noticeable to me that they have a huge building program Mm -hmm. uh, and also they have have this kind of weird hybrid where they refer to their clients as customers even though they are people who are you know effectively um in what what we used to think of as state housing or public housing uh, is, is is can kanga or play a role in this kanga order is kind of the original mm-hmm. build to rent business in the sense mm-hmm. that the homes they build are 100 percent for the purpose of, of housing people and not for the purpose of having them they haven't been purchased uh, as a hold for a for investment, they're not being rented out because the landlord is not mm. living in Auckland for now. I suppose the difference with Kayanga Order is that they are serving a social need. Yeah. And so they have a, their customer base is effectively subsidised. Would you imagine that, that National would privatise Kayanga Order? I honestly haven't got any insight into that as to you know, whether they would or would not. I noticed that. There was kind of no drawing Chris Bishop yesterday mm. on their kind of plans for that organisation. You know, look, I, I can see some some benefits to bringing some of the private sector disciplines into that management piece. But I can also see some, you know, we run a portfolio of 4,000 residential properties mm. and ultimately our approach to it has to be a little bit different. Helen, I, I wanted to ask about the potential for Bill to Rent and pension funds to invest in made-for-purpose rentals designed for people to live in for a long time where they don't have to worry about the owner possibly (laughs) selling the home to someone else and them having to move out at relatively short notice, the ability to put up pictures and those sorts of things on walls and maybe even have, have pets. That potential for a lot of capital, and we know there are trillions of dollars of this sort of pension fund money that's looking to invest in uh, regular cash flows, and we're seeing uh, more than $60 billion a month being invested in these sorts of projects around the world, why there hasn't been such uh, an influx of that money into New Zealand? Because in Australia... Um, there is a whole bunch of them, you know, popping up all over the place. You see these, you know, wonderfully solid and designed to last for a long time, but clearly not, you know, purely luxury apartments that are going up all over the place. We desperately need this sort of thing to complement whatever's coming out of Kyanga Aura. I wonder why we haven't seen that so far and what needs to be done to encourage it so that we have, you know, both Kyanga Aura and the private sector building lots more affordable homes. The key thing is the returns on this kind of investment are modest. They are very stable. They're very long-term, but they're modest. So you're talking sort of threes and fours uh, as opposed to 15, 20s. So, you know, they they work as a portfolio of investment for a super fund. You know, they're not going to give you stellar returns, but they will continue to give you returns come recession, pandemic, you know, and we've seen that in the properties that we manage that are in this category. It is a new asset class in New Zealand. So number one, the kind of understanding of the market has to develop for it. Renting is still not yet seen in New Zealand as something you choose to do. It's seen as something you have to do uh, until you can buy your own home. And that is partly because renting, it's perceived as something you do when you're, you're a kid and you're, or you're still growing up 
and you, you aspire to and you, you move on to that pathway. In parts of Europe, you know, this is a really, you know, renting for 30, 40, 50, renting for life is not un, not at all unheard of. And I think partly it's that perception that, that will start to change. You know, we manage a number of built-to-rent complexes, and in some of them, the upside for the people who occupy them is that, you know, when the bill for the hot water cylinder letting go turns up, they don't have to pay it. They call us and we'll get it fixed. Uh, and, and that bill is not theirs. So for, for those on a fixed income, uh, it's really can be very appealing. It's coupled with the fact that they have completely secure tenure. They know that the property will not be sold, that the landlord won't be moving back in, that there is money in the kitty to fix those problems when they need fixing, and that we'll continue to get them fixed because otherwise, you know, next time, we need another tenant, yeah. we'll have you know, poor reviews. It's, so. been, it's been notable in the New South Wales elections, um, which are coming up, that both the um, you know, the existing Liberal Party is looking at this and then Labour uh, is talking about rent control as well as, you know, incentives to, do, to, to build, you know, build, build to rent places. What, what's your feeling from, a, from an industry practitioner point of view about rent controls? Rent controls ultimately will have a perverse effect in terms of ultimately that is a signal to the market that uh, more supply is needed. And if you set rent controls at a level where supply is not provided, Mm. then someone has to step in and provide that supply. And I've read a few case studies in German markets, particularly in Berlin, uh, where they got Mm -hmm. bad rent controls and they got them badly out of whack and had to intervene in the market to boost supply, etc. We are comfortable with the current controls in the sense that landlords can only raise rent once every 12 months. Mm-hmm. Um, that rent increase is always subject to review by the um, – you can always take that to the Tenancy Tribunal. It can only be market, uh, and they are the final arbiter of what constitutes market. And you know, it helps to keep the – rent prices relative to the cost of provision. Ultimately, if you kind of move to a point where the housing costs, you know, the, the biggest driver of, of high rent costs is high build costs and high mm. land costs. Uh, and, you know, ultimately that's kind of, that, that has fed into the return that's needed on that equity to produce it. I'm not a big fan of rent controls for the simple reason. They distort the market. Short term, fine. They sound like a great idea long-term that cause real problem. So one of the reasons that uh, build-to-rent maybe hasn't taken off here yet is that when someone who wants to do a build-to-rent project to do hundreds of homes, they are treated the same from a tax point of view as a mum and dad investor in that they can't claim interest as a deductible expense for tax, at least not now. The government announced last year that well, they were going to put it through. Build, yes. Yeah, for, no, for new build, yes. Yeah, for new build. Still, if it's a new build. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And the government has uh, started a, a legislative process to uh, change that for bill to rent. But at the mm-hmm. moment, also, the bill to rent investors are seen as residential investors and therefore cannot claim depreciation for uh, tax purposes. And uh, we heard from Chris Bishop in a speech at the Property Council conference yesterday that a national government would treat build-to-rent the same as student accommodation and also retirement villages and that they can claim Mm -hmm. depreciation for the the long run. I'm just curious, what do you think is going to happen here? What should happen with these uh, measures to try to get it going? But I think these are real positives. The most, I think the thing that the sector is most excited about with regard to the changes that are being enacted right now, in fact, I think I believe they should come into effect by 31 March, is that this finally establishes built to rent as an asset mm-hmm. class. You know, so that you have, this is the test, this is the, you know, so at least you can get from there on in, we've, this is now a thing, and you can start to build on that platform. Adding depreciation to it, I think, is a really important part of the equation. End of the day, if you're treating this as a commercial exercise and the investment in it is an investment in the same as anything else you might buy or sell, then, you know, so that, all that, of the other rules that would help you. That helps you, Helen, get, get over the margin to some extent. That you. You make the depreciation, but then that then over some period is going to going to distort the investment patterns too, right? It's an incentive 
it's an incentive to invest in build to rent. No more than being able to depreciate your commercial fit out is an incentive to invest in a commercial building. I think the key thing is that being able to depreciate, you know, carpets wear out, furniture wears out, walls need to be painted, you know, things in a, in, in a residential building, believe me, you have to replace the tiles. Mm. <laughs> you know, all of these things, the building does depreciate. And if your time frame is holding a building for 50 to 100 years, yeah, then you, need which, that. you know, I'm also on the board of Simplicity <laughs> Living, and that is our time frame as a 100-year ownership. So you, you mentioned so, so Our building fund. will need to be replaced. You, you mentioned Superfund in there. Does that, does that mean that you actually think Superfund ought to come into this part of the market if there's, if there's a sort of reluctance for more commercial players to come in? To answer the last question first, I do believe more commercial player, lots of commercial, like realistically, the super fund behaves as a completely commercial player. Um, so I believe commercial players, including the super fund, uh, will look to move into this. We're certainly seeing in Australia a lot of superannuation funds investing in it. Uh, and ultimately, Simplicity is a key saver is uh, investing in it in that way. So, so just talking about the um, the build to rent, they're going to need land that is zoned properly to be able to do these larger buildings, the medium density residential standards that are coming through, the national policy statement on urban development is all designed to improve the medium density, the connections with public transport in our biggest cities. And you've been a close observer of this through the uh, unitary plan in Auckland, which I see that activists in favour of housing supply in the rest of the world are talking about the miracle of the Auckland unitary plan when they talk about increasing (laughs) or upzoning cities to allow more homes. Do you think that the MDRS process, which is uh, taking a bit of heat from councils in some areas, is enough to really give the enough space and the zoning so that we can get more of these medium density uh, um, properties, not just from build to rent, but from Congor and from other private developers. Going briefly back to your um, the miracle of the Auckland Unitary Plan, I, I'd love to read a couple of those stories, but also miracle my foot. It was bloody hard work. <laughs> And, you know, I think as Aucklanders, we all still owe an enormous vote of thanks to Penny Hulse for her incredible courage mm. uh, for the mahi she did in, in leading that piece of work. Look, the MDRS is certainly has some, probably I think it'll be more about implementation issues, but fundamentally the Auckland Unitary Plan has hugely changed for the better the opportunities for medium density developers to offer you know, housing opportunities in Auckland and places where we previously couldn't, in places where there is huge amenity, in places that are close to train stations. And if we want to combat climate change and if we want uh, my niece and nephew to be able to afford to live somewhere near their parents and their auntie so they can wipe the dribble off our chins when we get old, (laughs) we absolutely need to do that stuff. Uh, And I think the MDRS was a, a, a good way of picking that kind of, approach up and introducing it to the rest of the country without the seven-year process it took to get that through in Auckland. There will be shouting and there will be arguing and there will be some correct views on both sides of the debate, but we've got to grapple with this question of up, you know, some lots of up and some out. And when I when I go out of Auckland these days, I'm kind of taken aback by how flat everything is. <laughs> Because I'm I'm suddenly reminded of how single story all the suburbs of Auckland used to be not that long mm. ago, and you know I live in a medium density apartment. I live in a, on the fourth floor of an Ockham apartment myself. I will never go back to living in a standalone house because I love this lifestyle. I love the comfort, the warmth, the security, the view. I'm right on top of the Grafton train station, so. You know, my climate impact in terms of being able to get about Auckland is hugely enhanced. So, look, there will be some teething problems. There will be some arguments. There'll be some, but there's a bit to go through. But we've got to grapple with it. And why can't we learn from all of Auckland's mistakes? You know, it took us a long time to get here. God's sake, let's pick it up and take that. If you look at what Auckland's been doing with stretching its infrastructure, up and down the country, 
uh, up, you know, Auckland's a long, skinny isthmus of a city. Our infrastructure is stretched out like a rubber band. Tauranga is going to have yeah. a not too dissimilar issue yeah. as they keep spreading sort of further and further down the coast. Hamilton, Waikato, you know, how far are you going to take that stuff forward? You know, it's a long way to go. Uh, uh, but we just, we absolutely have to start, and I think it's a great start. Helen, just there's a question that come in would be from David Mooring, one of our one of our um, viewers, about the two buildings in Parnell that you managed, mm-hmm. I believe, um, Cottesmore Way and Dovedale Place, which were, uh, by the looks of it, severely damaged from the mm-hmm. floods. Do they need to be rebuilt in some way to protect them from future future flooding? What's the assessment there? Can I make a quick distinction to uh, sure. we are the body corporate manager or the body corporate secretary for those, uh, and I'm looking forward to the skateboarding dog, by the way. <laughs> um, we are the body corporate secretary for those complexes, which means that our function is, as the term implies, mm-hmm. secretarial. The, the decisions are made by the body corporate committee uh, and we provide, you know, post box, conduit, yeah. you know, support, advice but the decisions are made by the body corporate i honestly couldn't tell you what the circumstances were that kind of led to that flooding but as you'd know here in auckland that weather event was i hate to use the term but it's true was unprecedented Mm -hmm. lots of places experienced flooding that don't otherwise when you look at an area like parnell parnell was never designed for modern conditions Parnell was designed by a bloke called Parnell, probably, sitting in London. No, I, I, I think it was uh, named after Lord Parnell, mm. but carry on. Sure. Yep. I'm exaggerating. I know, I know. Yeah. But for common, to, to make the point. It was probably to John Logan Campbell who designed it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Some of our older parts of our city, you know, what we're trying to do now is retrofit the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And, yep, by all means, we should be focusing on the areas where that's been put in. If you go and look at Northcote, where Kaying Order has done a huge amount of redevelopment work, again, with the really broken down old homes that they started with. Mm-hmm. Their opportunity to do large-scale medium-density development there meant they had the opportunity to go back and retrofit modern, well-designed, climate-appropriate stormwater, and that that worked with the swales and the, all mm-hmm. that kind of good stuff. That responded incredibly well to um, the challenges of the, of the water events and Cyclone Gabriel. You know, where we do it, it's about doing it well. Thank you very much, Helen. It's lovely to see you. Thank you for uh, coming on and talking about um, that stuff. I'm a, a passionate um, inquirer and watcher of the whole medium density debates and, and building lots of... Lots and lots and lots of new, reasonably affordable homes for lots of people in the cities. And um, it's great to hear a lot more detail about it and and how it's being done. Because one of the really interesting things, I think, over the next few years will be people actually seeing these buildings and these apartments for themselves and not just hearing about it from planners Mm. and people who said, oh, I stayed in a place in Berlin once and it was lovely, Um, but actually seeing them in our cities and having them built. And I'd recommend it to all of our listeners and and readers, if they haven't already, to go to Christchurch and just look around at um, some of the types of buildings that are coming up there. Thank you very much, Helen, because you're right. Hey, look, I'm Bernard. I'm, I'm really passionate about that part as well. And I do think we should do a lot more study tours because I think so many people have developed a very poor impression of medium density or yeah. high density housing. Yeah. From some of the what Mike Todd likes to call the economic vandalism of the 1980s, uh, which is still evident on Hobson Street yeah. today. But some of the high quality, medium density work that is being done by lots of developers around Auckland. I often bring people to my apartment yeah. and like, my God, I did not know apartment living could be this well, nice. It's funny you should mention that because I, 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 I moved into an apartment which is a 1966 modernist one, but those Ockham, most of those Ockham ones, we, I've only seen them from the outside and I, I do hope to get an invitation to your apartment soon. But the, um, <laughs> the, the Ockham ones really are characterful, interesting, and the commitment to good architecture or interesting architecture is quite remarkable. So yeah. good, on, good on you for when you were there. And look, I think, you know, all credit to Mark Todd uh, and his team. You know, Mark is passionate about leaving a legacy that is actually one to be proud of. And he is more than happy to, you know, share his 
Carter philosophy, mm. etc., with people. And he's doing an open home tomorrow on Kawa Flats, which is the latest one in Meadowbank. Uh, I recommend getting along and taking yeah. a look at it. We should. Tr- but without, with our audience, he could be just overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, go, to, go to the Facebook page and register for a ticket first, but 14 units on 600 square metres, a hopping distance from the Urbank train station. It's What's not to like? Brilliant. And we will get it's Mark on. I'm not on commission, just FYI. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll have to get Mark on the on the hoon at some point. That would be lovely. Because he has very w- widespread and – and interesting views about a whole bunch of things. That's great. And a skateboarding oh, dog, Peter. Okay. We're, we're looking. Okay. We're, we're hanging so out really for it. It's, 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 fortunately, it doesn't involve anyone's head being put in soup or a man's tattoo being found inside a shark. Um, it's about Toblerone. Uh, and Toblerone, which has been bought by the, the chocolate, has been bought by Mondelez, which I think we all know has destroyed brands like uh, Cadbury mm-hmm. uh, and, as usual, spread Oreo into absolutely everything. So Toblerone, that triangular bite-sized chunk of chocolate that we buy at huge quantities and duty-free, can no longer uh, use the Matterhorn as a symbol oh, and can no. no longer say that it's made in Switzerland. It ceases to be Swiss chocolate because of the Swiss chocolate laws because they're moving some of the production to Slovenia. So this it is like is champagne. Exactly like champagne. And again, it is it is a very it's very important. It's actually not well because as you know, this Switzerland is not inside the European Union. Um it isn't that. It is just, you know, the Swiss protecting brand brand marks, landmarks like the Matterhorn. As it happens, Toblerone has only used the I, – I do have a bit of a chocolate issue, but the um, Toblerone has only used the Matterhorn itself since 1970, but will no longer be able to use either the Matterhorn or or the word Swiss anywhere on the chocolate. So does that mean we're going to have a, a Toblerone with Oreos in it that's yeah, round? I wouldn't be surprised. I, would, <laughs> I saw something totally disc- – because, of course, in Japan – you get Kit Kats, which I think is made by another, but it's made by Nestle, which it is Kit Kats with with um, with wasabi. But I did see on the back yeah. of a bus today here Kit Kats with uh, hazelnut and Kit Kat with pepper uh, peppermint, which just again sounds like an absolute hideous creation to me. But um, you know, I really also and the other thing, Mondelez is going to be inventing a mountain, so it's going to have a non-Swiss mountain uh, picture put on it, which reminds me, of course since you mentioned the euro, of all of the buildings and structures and structures on the euro notes are made up. Bridges and aqueducts and buildings and so on, but they all, none of them exist. Just like, so that, just like a fiat currency. Just like a fiat currency. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Very good, Bernard. But that, that's the best segue I've heard you do so far. Thank you. <laughs> Peter Bale, I, I'm Bernard Hickey. Thank you to Helen O'Sullivan. This has thanks, been sir. the Weekly Hoon. Lovely to see you all. Have a and great thanks weekend. Thanks, everybody, for coming on. Ka kite everyone. See you. Bye.